Please turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. This is on page 972 if you don't have a Bible. And we would love for you to take one of the ones under the seat in front of you. Take it home with you if you do not own a Bible. And hope that that will be a means of God stirring in your heart. Drawing you toward Christ. Revelation chapter 14. Today marks the Chicago Marathon. The running of the Chicago Marathon. And uh, you can tell, how would, how would you answer this question? You can tell somebody runs a marathon by what? By the fact that they tell you they run a marathon, all right? That's how you can tell that somebody runs in the Chicago Marathon or any other marathon. How can you tell that someone is vegan? Because they tell you. How can you tell that someone graduated from Notre Dame? Because they tell you. And finally, how can you tell that someone wears barefoot shoes? Because they tell you. And if you don't know what a barefoot shoe is, I've got one on, and so what it is, I'll just tell you about it later. But what I'm saying is people are devoted to a cause. People are devoted to other people. People are devoted to their teams. People find their identity in someone or in something. We all do this, whether you realize it or not. I'm willing to stand by that statement. We often find our identity in crazy places, The bottom line is, you are associated with somebody. You associate yourself with somebody or something. Our passage today is concluding a section, chapter 12, 13, and 14, a section about following one of two possibilities. You can follow the lamb, or you can follow the dragon. You can be associated with the lamb, or you can be associated with the dragon. And what we've seen the last few weeks is that the dragon, who is Satan, does what? He hates you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to slay your soul. He wants to bring you to eternal ruin. The Lamb wants to gloriously save you. And He calls you to follow Him. And so we've seen that this dragon wages against the the Lamb and his followers, and you have to decide which side of this war you're going to be on, which flag you're going to fly. And this passage, chapter 14, is like fast-forwarding to the end of a movie. Maybe you've watched a movie a hundred times, and all you want to see is the end. If you're watching it on a DVD, which I realize most people already just stream it now, but if you're watching it on a DVD, you just go to like the last chapter. And what this is doing, if chapter 12 and 13 is saying, this is what it looks like to follow the Lamb in the midst of intense spiritual pressure to be deceived by the dragon and his allies, the two beasts that we saw last week. That's, if that's looking at human history, kind of in a nutshell, from Christ's uh, return to heaven after his earthly ministry until Christ's return to earth at some point in the future, still, still waiting for that as we just sang about again, If that's what chapters 12 and 13 are doing, chapter 14 is skipping ahead in the DVD to the last chapter so you can see the last day and it's describing the fact that there is an end result coming and you need to know what that end result is and the end result isn't fuzzy. It's not like a choose-your-own-adventure book where you get to decide what it's going to be and you're not exactly sure if you click this series of buttons what the end result's going to be. Or which potion you're going to drink, what you're going to pop out looking like at the end. No, you know what the end of the path looks like. 
If you follow the lamb, you have a certain path. If you follow the dragon, you have a different certain path. Those are the two paths. Those are the two ways to live. There's no other middle road. If you align with the lamb, you will participate in glorious victory. If you align with the dragon, you will face eternal torment. Follow along as I read about these realities in chapter 14 of the book of Revelation. Excuse me. Again, it's on page 972 if you're just now looking for it in one of the provided Bibles. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless." Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. 
and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This passage is zooming ahead, fast-forwarding to the end of the story. What's it going to be like on the last day when God brings His great judgment on the earth? This passage is filling in the details for you, giving you a clear picture, and I hope a clear sense. I don't want to be a part of that. And I think that's what John is trying to tell us based on verse 12. Right in the middle of all this judgment, here's a call. Endure. You're a saint. You're a follower of the Lamb. Keep following. You don't want to be on the wrong side of this. This passage urges you, follow the Lamb wherever He goes. This passage is divided into three sections. Perhaps you notice that. Perhaps your Bible falls into three sections. It doesn't necessarily have to. Certain translations or certain editions of the Bible may not have any you know, subheadings and things like that. That's totally fine. Those are humanly made, often by people working on little bits of sleep who are working up against the deadline. So those, de- those headers, I'm just going ahead and tell you, aren't always the greatest summary of what's going to come. The ones here are, are fine, are good. <clears throat> I'm just saying, maybe you have those headings, maybe you don't. doesn't matter. There are three sections. Let me show you how. So let's assume you have a, an unmarked copy of the Bible and there's no subheadings. Here's one way you can see uh, that there are three sections here. The first is in verse 1. Then I looked. The next is in verse 6. Then I saw. And then in verse 14, then I looked. So those are the three sections. And what he's been doing the last couple chapters is using that same phrase over and over again. That's why you can lump chapters 12, 13, and 14 all together especially. He's seen lots of visions, but that's how we would divide this passage into three sections. And in the first section here, we're, we're asking the question, so why should I follow the Lamb wherever He goes? That's what we're trying to argue you should do. Every one of you here today should follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Why should you do that? First section, verses 1 through 5, tells you to follow the Lamb so you will receive your reward. Follow the Lamb so you will receive your reward. Verse 1 of chapter 14, John says, I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And Mount Zion there should sound a lot to you like Psalm. Take a guess, anybody? Psalm 2. It sounds like I preach Psalm 2 every, or allude to Psalm 2 in every sermon. It's because I do. But it's because I see Psalm 2 all over the Bible because I think Psalm 2 is super important. I think it's a way of interpreting the whole Bible in a sense. A, a like truncated summary of the whole Bible in Psalm 2. And so Mount Zion here. The Lamb is standing there on Mount Zion referring to essentially the New Jerusalem in this case. <clears throat> And what is that lamb doing? He's standing there. Again, going back to chapter 5, why is he standing? First we see the lamb. It looks like he's been slain, but he's standing there. This is Jesus who has been slain, but who is living again, who is alive forevermore, as we've seen elsewhere in this book. And who's standing there with him? 144,000 people. And I'm going to be like a bad math student and not show you my work, but tell you my answer. And if you want me to show you my work, I'll be happy to do that another time. But if I showed you my work on everything like this today, we'd be here till middle of the afternoon. So I'm just going to tell you, as we saw in chapter 7, I think the 144,000 people mentioned in chapter 7 and here in chapter 14 are referring to all of God's people across time. 
those who lived before Jesus' ministry, those who lived after, but anyone who has put their faith in Christ, either before He came, put their hope in Him, expecting the Messiah, and any of us, any of those like us who are living now or in, in the age of the church, who have put their hope in Christ or will until the day that Christ returns, whenever that may be, I think we are all included in this 144,000. Again, I can explain why uh, in a private conversation if that intrigues you. I'd be happy to talk about that. But I do know that this number, this 144,000 people, is a really interesting point in Jehovah's Witness theology. So if you've ever sat next to a Jehovah's Witness or talked to one, they may have talked about this in a significant way. Uh, this past February, when Terry and Eddie and I flew to Austin for a church conference, uh, I sat next to a Jehovah's Witness from Chicago to Atlanta, or maybe, I think it was on that leg of the flight. And I have never met anyone who was so embarrassed of her faith before, his or her faith. She was clearly shy about the fact that she was a Jehovah's Witness, about the fact that the beliefs she held were, in so many cases, preposterous. And she saw it, and I would point it out to her and be like, yeah, yeah, I know, I don't know how to explain that. And listen, we don't need to be embarrassed about the fact that we don't know how to explain everything, but we don't have to be embarrassed of our faith, okay? And I think there's a very different, big difference there. She was clearly embarrassed of her faith, and I just thought, man, I do not want to come across like that, where it feels like I'm just kind of like, oh, sorry, I, I, I know I'm a Christian, so I kind of have to believe this, so I'll just kind of tell you this. May we be confident in what we believe and know well what we believe, but essentially what she was saying is that the 144,000 are, as this passage describes, virgin men. And I just think to myself, so what about all the women? Like, what happens to them? And what she was saying was, well, those are the only ones who get to really go to heaven and really get to experience God's blessings. And I just thought, like, man, that sounds terrible. Like, on so many different levels, that sounds terrible. And that it's actually 144,000, not 139,999. It has to be, ex- I'm serious, like she was going, this is the line of, of reasoning and uh, that's the exact number of people who will be saved and will experience God's blessing forever. All that to say, that's one option. Or there's the option of saying this represents all of the redeemed across human history who have put their faith in Christ. I'm sure there are other options. I know there are other options. I'm just saying, I think this is the one that I find most compelling based on lots of different reasons. But what you find is that those people who are standing there with the Lamb, there's a couple details we need to notice about these people. First of all, they have a name written on their foreheads. It's the name of Jesus and His Father. Again, I believe this is an invisible sign, just like the mark of the beast that's on non-Christians is an invisible sign, which means we don't know who has which mark with 100% certainty, But who does know? God knows. God has no question about who are his and who are against him. And so these people have the mark. This is simply a way of saying they are Christians. They have put their faith in Christ. What else we notice about these people? They are singing very loudly. It sounds like thunder. It sounds like the roar of a waterfall, like standing at the base of Niagara Falls. It's loud. But it's also beautiful. You notice that? It sounds like harpists playing on their harps. And they're singing a new song. What are they singing about? Well, it actually tells you you can't learn that song unless you're one of them. But that means that they're singing about 
the glory of Christ, the redemption that He has won for them by dying in their place on the cross as a substitute for their sins. These people are singing this song because they've been redeemed from the earth, verse 3 says. It is these, and so now here's more details about these followers. These have not defiled themselves. This is simply a way of saying these people have kept fighting their sin, and yes, we all fall short of the glory of God. We all sin every day. We joked about that in our men's book study this week. Like somebody said, I'm probably going to sin like tomorrow. And I was like, I'll probably sin tonight. So congratulations to you for making it in the next 12 hours. The bottom line is we sin every single day. So how in the world then are we among these who are not defiled? That's simply a way of saying we have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. We have His mark on our forehead. We follow the Lamb wherever He goes. It's not that we have figured out how to live the perfectly holy life. We're never going to sin again. It's that Christ has lived the perfect, perfectly holy life. And when we put our faith in Him, by God's grace, we receive the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness is imputed to us. It's given to us when we deserve the exact opposite of God's grace and the righteousness of Christ. Christ took our sinful rags and wore them and suffered in our place because of it. And he gave us his robes of righteousness so that we are embraced and welcomed home by God. All because of the glorious work of Christ. This is how we are among those who have not defiled themselves. It's with these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. We'll talk about that more again in a moment. These, uh, here's another way of describing them. These are the ones who have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. That's Old Testament sacrifice language for saying like, this is the best part, right? So when you have a garden, the first fruits are beautiful. You've been waiting for these all spring or all harvest time. These are the first fruits for God, and in their mouth was no lie. Another way of saying these are people who have been marked by God, who are marked by their love for God. They are blameless, which is used elsewhere in the New Testament to talk about the, the qualifications for elders, for church leaders. For this redemption that John writes about here, they they have been redeemed from mankind, verse 4. Redemption in John's day referred to paying money to secure a slave's freedom. So you have somebody who is in bondage, and what this is saying is that Christ has paid the price. God has freed us from our sins because Christ paid the price for our sins. This is what redemption refers to. In the Old Testament, redemption is pictured as getting out of Egypt through the Exodus. In the New Testament, it's getting out of the bondage of our sin through our faith in Christ. So to follow the Lamb, when you hear the word following, what other book of the Bible comes to mind? We talked about this dozens of times probably from the book of Luke, right? Most of the big ideas of those sermons when we looked through Luke for quite a while started with the words, those who follow Jesus and then fill in the blank. And we could go in a lot of different directions with that because of, you know, again, that entire sermon series from Luke. But to follow the Lamb means you take up your cross and you follow Him. It means you trust that He will lead you like a shepherd through the valley of the shadow of death. And if that sounds like a mixing metaphor, like I'm following a Lamb who is my shepherd, well, John did that for us back in chapter 5. It means you face persecution 
for the Lamb. It means you fight sin because you love Him. It means you keep believing the truth about Him even when the world says, that's a stupid fairy tale that you're believing. Would you grow up? Would you wake up and smell the roses? You Christians are crazy for believing this stuff. You need to get with the times. And we as Christians keep holding on and keep believing the truth. It says that there's no lie in their mouth. This is referring to a passage in Zephaniah 3. They shall do, talking about the people of God, on the last day they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. John's taking a beautiful passage from Zephaniah and saying those who follow Christ are marked by holiness. In this life, imperfectly. In the next life, perfectly. And so, perhaps you're, you're asking yourself, how do I become one of these people? Because I really want to make sure I have the mark, the name of God the Father, God the Son, on my forehead. I really want to make sure that I am following the Lamb wherever I go. How? That would be a second question. How can I follow the Lamb all the way to the end? So let me answer that first question first. If you're here and you're not a Christian, or you have considered yourself a Christian your whole life, but you're living through a period of tremendous doubt about whether you're actually a Christian, you can know you are a follower of the Lamb because you put your faith in Christ alone. And you lay down your arms and you realize, I can do nothing to make God love me anymore. I can also do nothing to make Him love me any less if I'm in Christ. But I can't impress God with how much I've memorized or how much I've read or how many straight services I've gone to without missing one, even when I had pneumonia. And we could go on and on. Like, look how spiritual I am. No, that stuff does not save you. It does not contribute to your salvation. So you put your faith in Christ alone. You turn away from your sin and these other false gods that clamor for your attention and your love. And that's it. It's the simple gospel. You repent of your sin and you believe in Christ. And if you've never done that, that's what we urge you to do. And if you don't know how to do that, just talk to us after the service. Just grab somebody. And if they don't know how to help you, they'll find somebody else who can help you. But then how, so you say, I, I, I believe, I followed the Lamb. I believe I'm a Christian. How can I make sure I keep following Him all the way to the end? Follow Him wherever He goes. And I would say the, the best way to show your commitment to doing that is by getting baptized and joining a church that preaches the true gospel. So if you've never been baptized, we would urge you to do that as well. And so if you'd like to talk to me about that or Clayton about that, please do that after the service. Either one of those, baptism or church membership. But this is also why we as a church here at Brainerd practice what the Bible calls church discipline. Because, simply put, and you know this, you can observe this, we're all sane people here. You can observe that some people say, I follow the Lamb, but everything about the way they live tells a different story. So what do you do in that case? What the New Testament tells us to do is to practice church discipline, which is intended to show love to those people by calling them to repent. And true Lamb followers will repent. It is glorious when a church practices church discipline and the person responds responds by repenting and believing. It is beautiful. It is tear-jerking. It is glorious. But if they don't, the final act of church discipline is the most loving way to tell them the small sting that you feel 
by us voting to remove you from our congregation is just a taste, an inkling of the taste of the wrath you will feel on the last day if you don't follow the Lamb. So will you please do that? That's what we're telling people when we exercise church discipline. So follow the Lamb so you will receive your reward. In other words, so you will be marked with the name of Christ on the last day and you will stand in the new Jerusalem, the new city, the new heavens and the new earth. These are all terms the book of Revelation uses. Another term for that is Mount Zion. So you will stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb and with everyone who has the name of the Lamb written on their forehead. So follow the Lamb so you'll receive your reward. Secondly, follow the Lamb to escape the wrath of God. I just alluded to it a moment ago, the wrath of God. But verses 16 through thir- or 6 through 13, I should say, tell you to follow the Lamb to escape the wrath of God. There's an angel flying. We've seen tons of angels in this book, so that's why he refers to another angel. He's saying, just go back a couple chapters. You see all those angels there. Here's another angel. He's flying directly overhead. That's not good. Okay, When you see that in the book of Revelation, when it's flying right overhead, with an eternal gospel to proclaim, he's giving you fair warning. He's telling you, follow the Lamb again. He keeps preaching. This, this angel is preaching the same eternal gospel. It's a gospel that gives you eternal life. It's also a gospel that spans from eternity past to eternity future. That's, either one of those are good reasons, or good ways to explain what he means by an eternal gospel. And he's telling these people to do, to respond in three ways. They're basically synonyms, but fear God, give Him glory, and worship Him. Why should you do that? Because right in the middle of verse 7, smack dab in the middle of verse 7, because the hour of his judgment has come. Every single time the word hour shows up in Revelation, it's in the context of judgment. So this is not a good time. It's not referring to an hour as in 60 exact minutes. It's saying the time has begun for the wrath of God to be poured out, and you don't want to be there for that. So respond by fearing him. We use the word fear in a lot of different ways. People are afraid of death. People are afraid of spiders. Totally understand that second one. Um, But what this is referring to is not this, this fear like I need to run away from something, but just I need to bow before something. I need to stand in awe and reverence. Like when you step out of a tent in a campsite and you look up and you see an incredible panorama of bright stars above you because you're in the middle of nowhere and you can actually see the stars, it takes your breath away. It's meant to take your breath away. God does that to show a taste of his glory when you see something like that. So fear God in light of how powerful and glorious and big he is. Fear him instead of somebody else, instead of somebody who can ruin your reputation. Instead of someone who can soil your family name, instead of financial loss, instead of losing a loved one, fear him instead of loneliness. Fear him instead of losing your job. We could go on and on. Fear God, bow before him, revere him. Verse 8 tells us about the second angel. So this first one is saying, Fear God, respond. Here's, Here's your invitation. Go ahead and repent because you want to be on the right side of this. Verse 8, another angel tells us what's happening under the wrath of God. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. We're going to see this throughout the rest of the book of Revelation for the next several chapters at least, uh, beginning in chapter 16, I believe, next Sunday. 
Babylon represents the, the powerful human system that opposes the people of God. So the nation of Babylon took the people of Israel into exile, right? In the Old Testament, one of the most significant aspects of Old Testament history. And here, Babylon would refer to Rome, the people who were pressing in and pressing hard on God's people. Who's Babylon today? Who's Rome today? It would be the world system that is clamoring and clanging and jingling everything they can possibly jingle to get your attention and say, follow us instead of the Lamb. And it's all the people who are saying, you are such a fool for following Jesus, for believing that gospel business, and on and on. Or for who are, these are the people who are taking Christians in other countries to jail for preaching the truth. Will that ever happen in our day? Who knows? In our place? Who knows? Is what I meant by that. In our day, in our place. It is happening in our day in other places. Will it happen here? We don't know. But are you willing to keep preaching the truth, even if that is the end result? I hope that if that day comes, months, years, decades down the road, you can look back on a day like today and say, I'm going to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And if wherever He goes leads me to jail, I'm going to follow Him to jail. I'm going to keep standing for the truth. Follow the Lamb to escape the wrath of God. Verse 9 tells us about a third angel. And he's saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image, the beast we saw in chapter 13, and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath. And this mark, again, is a visible or is an invisible sign that that person is devoted to the beast as opposed to the, to the lamb. You have one or the other. Everybody has one or the other. These are invisible markers. Well, you can generally tell someone has the mark of the beast, at least right now, by the way that they live, by the works of the flesh that are visible by the way that they live. And these are evidences that they're opposed to the Lamb and His people. What's amazing and what's glorious is that someone that you may have in mind right now, so picture the person in your mind that you think, well, that person clearly has the mark of the beast, not the mark of the Lamb. Who would that person be in your life, in your family, in your employment history, in your current office cubicle setup? Who would the person be that you would say, that person is obviously on the other side? What's glorious is that God can take someone from that side and take them to the other side and give them the mark of the Lamb. And I want to encourage you to listen to podcasts or read books or watch YouTube videos of someone named Rosaria Butterfield. We talked about this person about a week and a half ago on Wednesday night. Two decades ago, everybody who knew her would have said, yeah, she's marked with the beast. Now, everybody that knows her says, yeah, she's marked by the Lamb. It's glorious. So go ahead and follow up on that one. But the wrath of God is your greatest problem because every single person deserves the wrath of God because you are sinful. It's not that you, because you do bad things, because you sin. You are sinful, which is why you do the bad things. But because you are sinful, you deserve the wrath of God. You're going to receive the wrath of God. Romans 1 tells us this is your greatest problem. Romans 3 tells us the greatest solution is that you can put your faith in Christ who redeems and atones for sinners. And I want to tell you, out of love, that the 
the fate that this passage is describing, the reality of hell, is a fate far worse than whatever else you're afraid of in your life. It's a fate far worse than death or poverty or disease or lack of education or mental illness or a poor reputation or financial hardship. It is way worse. That's what this passage is describing when it talks about this cup of God's anger poured full strength. And those who receive will be tormented with fire and sulfur, making you think of like the Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. We tormented. The smoke of that torment goes up forever and ever. That sounds awful. That's why we tell people, repent and believe the good news that Jesus rescues you. Verse 12 reminds you, the reason John is telling you these realities of what's going to happen when God pours out his wrath on the last day is so that you will hold fast. You will keep the commandments. You'll keep obeying. You'll keep doing what's right. And you will hold fast to your faith in Jesus. This is what Jude talks about in Jude 3 when he says, I'm going to tell you to contend for the faith. He's not saying contend for believing, contend for a set of beliefs. The set of beliefs, for instance, that we quoted or read, affirmed together in the Nicene Creed, or that you affirm when you read through a book like Jude or 1 John. Keep contending for the truth that you read in God's Word. And John's saying, look at what will happen if you fall away, if you stop believing in Jesus. Why would he tell you to look at that? So you won't do it. So you'll want to keep holding fast to Jesus all the way to the end. Verse 13, following up on that call for endurance, says, look, it is blessed to die in the Lord, to have your faith in the Lord on the day you die, because you're going to rest from your labors, you're no longer in a fallen world, and because your deeds follow you. What does that mean? We affirm to the Nicene Creed today, the resurrection of the body from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 says that when the Lord returns, we will, have, we will go from having an earthly body to having a heavenly body. Inglorious to glorious. And he describes it in multiple different ways. And you think, well, what in the world does that look like? And John says, or I'm sorry, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, well, I mean, you throw a seed in the ground and it's black and it's about this big and out comes a watermelon about this big. Yeah, I didn't quite expect that. Throw an acorn about this big in the ground because it fell off a tree in October, and hundreds of years later, or 50 years later, however far down the road, you have a humongous towering oak tree. Didn't quite expect that either. So Paul's saying, you know, just hold your horses for a little bit, but here's what I want you to know about the resurrection bodies. You're actually going to have one, and your deeds are going to follow you. So what you do in this life actually matters, is what that means. How you work, how you serve, who you love, what you love, what you devote yourself to actually matters. So follow the Lamb so you'll receive your reward. Follow the Lamb to avoid, essentially, the wrath of God. And third, follow the Lamb because the day of judgment is near. Again, it's like he's taking you to the last clip of the movie of human history. He just wants you to see this is what it's going to look like He's telling you this out of love. He's not doing this to scare you. He is telling you this so you will endure. So you'll follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Follow the Lamb because the judgment day is near. He sees 
on a white cloud symbolizing the presence of God, the judgment of God. You see someone seated on that cloud like a son of man, Daniel 7. I've said that phrase, Daniel 7, just about every single sermon in the book of Revelation. John is majoring on Daniel 7. He's throwing it in everywhere he can possibly throw it in. It's like his favorite ingredient in this soup. And here it is again, seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. That means this is Jesus. And he is wearing a golden crown, showing that he is the king and he is eternal. And he's holding a sharp sickle that's going to cut down the harvest. And an angel comes out of the presence of God, the temple, saying, put in your sickle and reap. for The hour to reap has come. Again, the hour is throughout Revelation referring to judgment. So that's why I think this is referring to judgment here as well, as opposed to some kind of ingathering of the saints. It may be that. It could be wrong. There could be the one exception. That's fine. But very likely this is just a way of saying Jesus is going to harvest the earth. He's going to bring about judgment. And there's another angel. This makes me think of like the angel of death in the book of Exodus. Around chapter 14 or so. The angel comes out to the, uh, the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. And that angel swings his sickle. And then you have this picture of trotting out the grapes like you would do to make wine in, in ancient days. This is symbolizing the wrath of God, symbolizing the blood of judgment. There is certain victory for lamb followers. That's what this passage is telling you. But what's the flip side of that coin? There is certain destruction for dragon followers. Jesus went outside the camp. We read in Habakkuk, uh, I should say Hebrews 13. He went outside the city. Here, here we read that same phrase in verse 20. The winepress was trodden outside the city. What's the city? Let's go back to verse 1. Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the new city, the heavenly city, the new heavens, the new earth, the promised land. And outside that place, The wrath of God comes on all those who did not have the mark of the Lamb. So I want to urge you, Christians, one way to keep following the Lamb, if you, you know, earlier I said if you're not a Christian, if you haven't been baptized, if you haven't joined a church, let's say you've done all of those things. You've put your faith in Christ and you've been baptized to show it and you have joined a church to help have people help you follow the Lamb. One way you can keep doing that is to take the Lord's Supper. And I don't know of anyone here who should be taking the Lord's Supper and doesn't take it when we take it together. I know people in other churches uh, where I've served or been a member who wouldn't take the Lord's Supper at certain times because they felt like they weren't worthy enough and so forth. The Lord's Supper is for unworthy Christians. The passage says to take it in a worthy way. That's the First Corinthians sermon for years down the road. But there is nobody who can say, I'm qualified, look at how good of a squeaky clean week I lived. No, the Lord's Supper is for fallen sinners who need to follow the Lamb one more week, one more month, one more year of their life until they stand before the Lord. And taking the Lord's Supper is a way that you hear the call to keep enduring, keep walking in God's ways and wisdom. Do you assume that Hollywood and Wall Street and Silicon Valley and Disney and ESPN and the Washington political scene are neutral? They are not. Not a single one of them. That's not a comprehensive list. All those relate to us more than they would relate to people living in Saudi Arabia or in Australia. 
may affect those people maybe a little bit too, but those are the ones that influence our hearts right now and right here. And I'm just here to tell you they're not neutral. They're not indifferent to you following Jesus. They're not indifferent to you following the dragon. You can't do both. You can't do neither. And I'm here to tell you, I think most of those forces, most of the time, are telling you, now leave the lamb alone. Let's go this way. Follow your own heart. Do what you think is true. Follow your truth. I recently read a Christian author dedicating a book to his young daughter. She was nine when he was playing a game with her. He said, if you can spot a lie, he called the game Spot a Lie, and if you can spot a lie, I'm going to give you a dollar. And he said, that's going to be true every time we're watching a YouTube video or a movie or a game or anything like that. I'm going to play Spot a Lie. And what you have to do is identify the false idea and then tell me why it's a lie. Tell me what's false about it. Tell me what's untrue about it. What's demonic about it, in other words. What's from the dragon about it. And and she would get a dollar. And so one day she ran down the stairs to him and he said uh, that, uh, she said to him, you owe me another dollar. And he said, okay, what's the lie? And she said, daddy, uh, uh, what, what she had seen was a commercial that told her to follow her heart. This shows up like in every Disney movie and things like that, so it's probably an ad for that. And he said, okay, so where's the lie? She said, Daddy, I don't want to follow my heart. My heart is fallen. I'd rather follow God's heart. It's way better. And this author wrote, some may think, what a shame. He's indoctrinating that poor little girl. And he said, the opposite is true, because the world is indoctrinating her. He said, I want to make a heretic out of her. If you want to read about this book, go to jointheheretics.com. Heretics in a good way, in this sense, okay? He said, I want her to question and ultimately rebel against the doctrines of our day. Indeed, we need an entire generation of heretics, iconoclasts, renegades, mavericks, and rebels who refuse to march like good little cows mooing in unison with the herd. When advertisers, TikTok influencers, singing princesses, pop star divas, animated potatoes, and university professors tell them to be true to themselves, find the answers within, and follow their hearts, they say, to hell with your dogma, because it's going to lead them to hell. Friend, you do not have an excuse on the last day. You have been given fair warning. You see the two paths. You see where they diverge. The end of the road isn't fuzzy as if you're not sure where the path ends. Do not be true to yourself. Do not be more committed to a marathon or a kind of shoes or a brand of food than you are to the Lamb. Follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we need Your grace to endure. And we give You thanks that Your grace is readily available to us. So make us, as Your people, Zealous for good works to one another. Zealous to disciple one another. Zealous to keep feeding the truth to our children and grandchildren and our friends and our neighbors and people around the world. Lord, we believe what Your Word tells us. Every word of it. And Your Word tells us there are two ways to live. So may this congregation be marked as people who joyfully, humbly, bravely, courageously follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Amen. Please stand with me.